righty, here we go. Episode 51, Stick to Hockey Live. Jason Martinez, Anthony DeMarco, and the Flyers continue their uh, Western Canadian road trip. Well, it didn't start in Western Canada. It started in Seattle in the western northwest of the United States. Goes to Vancouver, both 6-2 losses. Goes to Calgary yesterday in Alberta, and the Alberta two-step takes them to Edmonton tonight, three games in four days, and um, it was an impressive win last night Ant, over Calgary after a couple of rough ones uh, to start off the trip. 6-2 scores in both of those games. What did you see in that game against uh, Calgary? What stuck out to you? Well, Sam Burson. Obviously, Sam Burson yeah. was absolutely brilliant in that game. And, I mean, I think we could all comfortably say that if it wasn't for Sam Burson, that Flyers team doesn't get the win last night. Like, they were yeah. – very much outplayed specifically in the first period and that guy just stood on his head and I think the Flyers got their legs a bit as the game went on but even in the third period like it just seemed and I think like there was a goal that Sam Merson would like to have back I think it was the second one if I'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. but I mean yeah he slides through on that weird angle yeah, but you could certainly excuse that after, the, for lack of better terms, the heroics he was pulling up for the entire game. But, I mean, good for the Flyers for sticking with it. I think they deserve credit for, you know, facing that adversity and, you know, riding their goaltender to try and get back in the game. Good goal by TK before he ultimately gets injured Oof. and leaves the game. But, I mean, uh, all in all, I mean, I think it was a win they really needed. And that's sometimes you need your goaltender to do that. Sometimes you need your goalie to step up and uh, help you get a win that you don't really deserve. And hopefully they could use that and build off of it going into tonight versus the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, I mean, I said on the podcast on Flyers Daily that you never apologize for good goaltending. He's a part of the team just like anything else. And sometimes you just need – sometimes you have those games where the team's got to overcome – subpar goaltending and sometimes the goaltenders got to you know be the one that carries it while the team is getting their legs under it especially on a road trip like that um the 210 save was outrageous yeah <laughs> that almost, was nuts oh, i went back and looked at it a couple of times and and he almost made it look routine the way he exploded and read the play and, and it's not like it's against a couple of third or fourth liners it's cadre and huberto who are yeah. on that 2 and 0 Yeah, and to be fair, it's not like Huberto's had a great year, and you could even yeah. ask his uh, his agent, Alan Walsh, just how good of a year he's having after another controversial tweet. But no, Sam Urson has uh, certainly made his presence felt if he hadn't already during his first tour of duty with the Flyers back in December. But, you know, it's like John Tortorella said with you on Flyers Daily. He is the backup right now, and... Look, obviously, I was told, I tweeted it, that before the the Western road trip, there wasn't a plan to put Felix Sandstrom on waivers. But at this point, I I don't know how you don't. I mean, there is a chance that he gets claimed. You know, he is, what, he's only 25 years old. Um, I don't think he has a starting future in this league, but I think he could certainly be a backup. And, you know, I look at a team like maybe the Columbus Blue Jackets, who maybe you're going to see Jonas Corposalo get shipped out before the trade deadline. Obviously, Elvis has had a really tough season there. Maybe a team like that takes a flyer on him. Maybe the Anaheim Ducks, who knows? But, I mean, at this point, uh, I understand why they're a bit reluctant to give up that depth. Like, I I do think that in some ways, Felix Sandstrom has not been worse than, let's say, what you got from Martin Jones or certainly Brian Elliott two years ago. And for the first time in a while, the Flyers like their goaltending depth. 
But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be a ta- catastrophic loss if they were to lose Sandstrom on waivers. Yeah, see, that that's the element we don't know. We don't know what team's going, okay, we're going to trade this from our goalie you know, pool, whether it's a depth piece of goaltending or what it is. So we don't know who has a need or who knows they're going to have a need. So waving him and just going, well, he hasn't been that good this year. He's going to pass through. That's It's not as simple as that. And, you know, it, that game last night was exactly what Torts is talking about. He needed from Felix Sandstrom was you got to make a save. Sometimes you're not supposed to make in a big spot in the game. And that's exactly what Eris did. Um, JB PHI frequent tweeter to uh, myself and Flyers Daily and everything else says when Torts uh, in the interview that I had him last week said that Erickson's been their best goalie since camp. Do you think that was inclusive of Hart? Now, uh, Anthony Sanfilippo asked me that before we went on last week as well. And the way he said it, I went back and listened to it. He just said, you know, he was our best goalie in camp, but that was Hart wasn't in camp. He didn't play preseason. I don't think he was saying this entire season. Um, I think he was just saying, you know, he impressed us in the beginning of the year. Sandstrom was also hurt as well. So they didn't get a, a huge look at him, but gross Nick. And, um, and JB says, uh, why not carry three? They need, do they need, they don't need this spot at the moment. What's the bigger risk? Well, you can carry three, but it's really not ideal. Only yeah. Two guys practice really, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I remember asking about that shortly after the holiday break because I think Anthony Sanfilippo had suggested that maybe they were going to carry three and ultimately they did just send Erison down because it, it's just an awkward situation, right? Like, it's weird e- even now. Like, I'm sure they're all great guys. I'm sure they're all buddies. But, like, it, it's a bizarre thing when there's a one goalie who's a healthy scratch. And even for, for practice, there's only two nets. Yeah. A goalie and I, has to play. You're not going to... You, you, your sharpness and everything deteriorates every day you don't play. And when there's only two nets at practice, there's it's really going to deteriorate further. It's not like carrying an extra forward. No, exactly. Because at least as an extra forward, you could get up into the practice. A lot of times, like an extra forward will play as like an eighth defenseman. So mm-hmm. he could take line rushes with the seventh D. There's always options. But like when you're the third goalie, there really is limited space. There's only two nets. So there's always one guy on the outside looking in. And even for a guy like Sandstrom, and look, I, maybe I'm a bit biased here because I've always been rooting for the guy. I found like a lot of people were so upset and just kind of shat on him before the season. Uh, even started that he was going to get a shot to be the backup but I mean I don't think he's a starter in this league I don't think he'll ever be a starter in this league but I think there's a possibility that maybe he could be a uh, a backup in this league and there is value in that and he is a guy who like I said is what 25 years old and I think a lot of teams would probably at least take a look at it. and it is it does kind of suck that the Flyers are in a position here that they may ultimately have to lose a not an extremely valuable piece, but like having a solid third goalie and especially a younger one who still has room to develop is something that at least counts for something. Yes, you do have Grosnick back healthy, so he could kind of be that serviceable number three guy. But I just think that all in all, the Flyers really like the depth of goaltending they have throughout their organization right now, especially when you count, especially when you count for what they have overseas. But at the end of the day, I think that maybe waivers is a big possibility here. Yeah, I do too. Um, 
when I look at that game last night, obviously we talk about Ayers. He becomes the eighth goalie in NHL history to start his career six and zero. But the the biggest storylines that I take out of there's four storylines that I take out of the game. Um, number one involves TK, the hit that he takes between the numbers in the back, and I don't know why it wasn't a penalty for a hit from behind by Uyghur because he not only hit him from behind, he fucking trucked him. <laughs> yeah. And that's number one. Number two, obviously, is the storyline is the guy that didn't play, the other Travis, Sanheim. Number th- uh, three in my storylines is Joel Farabee, the fact that he played three minutes and 52 seconds in a game where they lost TK with about, what, five minutes left in the second and didn't play any of the third. And only let Sell saw five minutes of ice time. Farabee moved to the fourth line. That's a big storyline. And then the other storyline for me is the fact that Torts kept saying about the prior games, the Seattle game and the Vancouver game, that they, while they, yeah, they maybe got more pucks to the net, outshot, outchanced the team. A lot of it was from the perimeter. All four goals in this game scored from the middle of the ice. So uh, messaging has not been tuned out, obviously, because they attacked the middle of the ice. But let's start with TK. What did you think of the hit uh, that he took from, from Uyghur in that spot? I thought it was definitely a bit questionable. I, I was watching, obviously, the Sportsnet broadcast, which is obviously the Calgary Flames broadcast, and their reasoning was is that TK was the guy who maybe went to engage with kind of that reverse, not like a hip check. I thought he just, like, yeah, I thought he just turned to protect the puck. Yeah, I thought he was just bracing for the hit. Obviously, mm-hmm. where he hit him, it wasn't dangerous in the sense because he wasn't going towards the boards. He kind of felt parallel with the board. So I think that's what kind of saved Uyghur. But certainly the way that he fell on his way down is what caused the issues there. And I mean, you know, I think Charlie O'Connor had pointed out, I heard you had mentioned it as well is that he was really starting to scratch the surface and bang on the door for a goal against the Vancouver Canucks. And then he comes out a great single, uh, single-handed single effort there on the rush where he cuts the middle of the ice, puts it right through Jacob Markstrom. And on a side note, how tragic has this decline been of Jacob Markstrom? Like, hey, second in the Vesna last year, and this year he can't... I mean, he gets beat by Tony D'Angelo at the top of the circle in the slot. I mean, clean, high glove. He's got He's got to get something on that. And, and it was I, a snapshot. I, it wasn't even a clapper. And I believe it was Bob McKenzie entering this year. I, I think he had said that if you had gone back over the last five regular seasons, he had been like the best goaltender in the yeah. NHL, like consistently. Yeah, yeah and he, ever since that playoff series last year against who did they play in the in the third in the second round? Uh, Edmonton. Edmonton. Yeah. He just completely fell apart, and he hasn't gotten his game back. And uh, yeah. I mean, so the Flyers definitely benefited from that. But, I mean, I do think that TK's rush is, you know, he does that little cutback, gets the middle of the ice right above the hash marks, and he puts it, again, right through Jacob Markstrom. And then as for Joel Farabee, like, you know, he's a guy that he's like the only young player that I feel like has severely regressed post Ale Vigneault because it seemed like he was one of the few younger guys that AV really trusted and that he excelled under. And I remember that he was in 55 games that one year. Yeah. And that was when he was playing, I think it was with Katori and James Van Riemsdyk. And I remember that that first, it wasn't uh, the standard, obviously, but it was something similar when they started overseas in 2019, 2020, 
where Vino had that conversation caught on camera with Farabee. They was just like, you're going to go down, but you keep doing what you're doing. You come back up. And I remember that you're like, Farabee was a guy that he would go down, he would come back up, he would play fourth line, then he would play third line, then he would go down. And it's like, no matter how much adversity AV threw at him, he would always find a way back. And even once they traded for guys like Thompson and Grant, and he was one of the odd man out, he found his way back into the playoffs and became a contributing guy. And I think even started playing in the, in, on the second line. Then obviously as the good sophomore season, and then early on last season under AV, when the team was playing well, he caught really good chemistry with guys like Derek Broussard and Cam Atkinson. They weren't a great defensive line, but they were always, you know, scoring above expected in terms of uh, offense. But he seems like one of the few guys here that has really taken a step back post Alain Vigneault. Obviously, the surgery has a lot to do with that. Obviously, that very serious neck surgery he had, didn't have time to train in the offseason, was supposed to be back in you know, around Thanksgiving, ends up coming back in time for the start of the regular season. But clearly, I think there's more than that. He's one of the guys this year, of all those younger guys, I was expecting the most from him, probably even more than Travis Konechny, because he kind of seemed like he would be a John Tortorella type of player. And I thought that, you know, maybe he's going to take steps in terms of leadership as well. Is he a potential, like, outside chance for captain for the long-term future here? But I think there's more to it than injury here, and John Tortorella clearly is seeing the same thing. I think you're you're seeing a player that's been chasing it all year, trying to catch up, and he's been hasn't been. He's like you know, it's like trying to catch a rooster yeah. <clears throat> or a chicken in the coop. You're just chasing it around. He's chasing his game around. There's times where it looks like okay, it's get his game is really close, or a couple of games where he looks pretty good, and then it's a regression again, and. And I would say, you know, the surgery is not an excuse, but I see Eichel and I see at points this season, Eichel's still struggling at times and he's a much higher pedigree player. I know Bruce Cassidy's gone to him and been like, we need more from you. You know, you, you got to be the catalyst on this team and that surgery. And I look at Farabee's shooting percentage about nine this year. The neck is one of those things that will affect your shooting big time. And your ability to shoot the puck and deception and changing angles. And yeah, I mean, I said to Brian Smith before the game in Calgary, I said, you know, the fact that he was moved to fourth line center, the next move is to the press box is where Travis Sandheim's going to be for that game. And then he only plays 352. Now, I think a big part of the decision tonight for Farabee would be is going to be predicated on Travis Konechny's availability. I don't think Konechny will be available tonight. That's just my gut feeling. But um, that could save him and keep him in the lineup tonight. But the fact that he didn't play at all in the third period when Konechny was out and Torts went with three lines when he knows he's got three games in four days, you know, in a back-to-back is pretty telling, you know. So I I don't know. I don't know where they go from here. But, you know, Sanheim being scratched um, is obviously a big deal. And it's accentuated by the fact, as JB points out, we talked about this last night, he played his junior hockey in Calgary in the dub. And it's a, he had family in the building on family day in Canada. And it's a huge message to the player. Now I'm a firm believer that if a player needs to be healthy scratched, I don't care where it is. Geography doesn't matter. I can't worry that, you know, he once hooked up with a chick there or <laughs> fuck, played his junior hockey there, or played his, you know, squirt hockey there. I don't care. 
when the player needs to be scratched. I can't worry about that stuff. I got to do what's best for my team. And some people look at it and go, well, it's more of a message. Maybe it is to the player, but I can't, I don't ever look at that from a coach standpoint and go, that should be part of the consideration to make it more impactful. When he needs to be scratched, you scratch him. It doesn't matter if it's at home, on the road, in the town he grew up in, or on Mars. If the player needs to be scratched, you scratch him. Yeah, and I think we saw that with Morgan Frost in Toronto in early November. You can't make decisions based on like what the calendar dictates. And Travis Sanheim, I thought, was kind of turning a corner a bit in Seattle. And then in Vancouver, obviously, just has an absolute terrible game. And, you know, since they returned from the uh, from the All-Star break, while he has done better on the offensive side of the puck, it's clear that, you know, he's been the worst defenseman de- defensively in terms of expected goals against per 60. He's up over three. And look, I think that all defensemen on this team have kind of struggled, struggled since coming back from the All-Star break, mostly because... Like when I see the entire defensive group struggling like it is, I think a lot has to do with the fact that the Fords just cannot sustain, sustain pressure with the puck or sustain possession with the puck, and the guys are always constantly defending. And you also see kind of like a trickle down effect where the Flyers had pretty much the same pairs for so long. And then because Travis Sanheim and Tony D'Angelo were such a disaster, they all got put into a blender. And then, you know, last night, John Tortorella goes back to the well, or not really back to the well for, for him, but what we've been accustomed to the last 24 months with a Justin Braun, Ivan Provorov top pair. Yeah. And I thought like that was just an absolute adventure. And we're well accustomed to what those two are as a top pair, uh, give, going back to the beginning of uh, 2021. You know, I thought Cam York and Nick Sealer, uh, not Nick Sealer, Rasmus Ristolainen had a very good game. Obviously, Nick Sealer has continued to be probably their most consistent guy as a number six. I think D'Angelo has been better, but Travis Sanheim is a guy to me that they've obviously committed to very long term here. They want, they foresee him as a staple of this top four moving forward. And if they really want to get some balance to their pairs, specifically in the top four, he is a guy that absolutely needs to get his head straight. You know, I don't think he's as bad as he was this or as bad as he has been this year, but there is certainly so much more for him to give. And you see the trickle-down effect because the Flyers aren't a team with a stud number one. They aren't a guy that, you know, you could pair with like a Tony D'Angelo like Jacob Slavin was, who you could carry along and kind of give more, I guess, diversity on your bottom two pairs. You know, I, I spoke to someone with the Flyers last week, and they said to me that, yeah, we don't have a stud number one, but if York and Provorov and Sanheim and Risto are all playing at their top games, you have two solid pairs. And to this point, Travis Sanheim certainly hasn't been there. Yeah. I mean, do you get the sense and that this offseason, you know, they're going to commit. They've committed from a contractual standpoint to both Sanheim and Provorov. But from a real, you know, a team that's trying to figure out how to move forward and, you know, maybe they want to move Cam York to that left side and you've got a glut there. Do you get a and, and Cam York playing third pair, I don't think makes much sense. I think that they envision him as a top four, you know, playing either the top two pairs. But do you get a sense that either Provorov or Sanheim, it, it's going to be one of those guys that's not going to be here the following year? 
Well, I, I think it's been going that way for a long time here that eventually, even with, you know, Provorov's pending contract looming in two years from now, that eventually you were going to have to pick between one of those guys. And then you look at even beyond Cam York, Igor Zamula, Emil Andre, they do have organizational depth on that left side of the defense. I don't think it's something that they're married to. I think that they could certainly come back next year with Provorov and York and Sanheim and Ristolainen as their top four, if absolutely need be. Like, I wouldn't be totally shocked if their starting six next year is their starting six this year, minus Justin Braun, of course. But I do agree that there certainly is like kind of an imbalance here where it always seems like one pair is like, yeah, is that working right now? I think York and Ristolainen is a pair that I'd be very comfortable with long-term as a second pair. I think Ristolainen's newfound type of style complements Cam York really well. And it's weird to say, given what he played with historically, but Ristolainen has kind of been like a steadying presence on that back end. I agree. With the way he plays, he's the closest thing that you've had to Matt Niskanen since he left two and a half years ago. And I know a lot of people would say, like, you know, you, you should trade him while his value is high. I'm not, he's certainly not untouchable, but I think Ristolainen, the way he's played this year, has become a guy that's very, would be very tough to envision moving because, like you always say, the cost for replacement. Where are you going to find a guy to play the way Ristolainen is playing? My question is, is the top pair, because I'm not a big believer in Travis Sanheim as a top pairing defenseman. I'm a believer in Ivan Provorov as a top-pairing defenseman. Now, is Provorov number one? No, he's not. But if I have to play Travis Sanheim with, and I'll just use him as an example here, Ryan Ellis five years ago, I'm going with Ivan Provorov because I don't know if Sanheim can handle those tough shutdown mids, specifically on the penalty kill, as we outlined last week. So I do think it is coming to a head with one of these two guys, it seems based on everything that's gone down here the last two months and everything we've heard that Ivan Provorov is that guy. But if it were me, I've been saying all along that Travis Sanheim's the guy that I would look to move on from. But obviously the impending contract extension of eight years is going to certainly complicate that. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is this is, is it easier to replace one guy on a top pair or two? And it's much easier to put in a guy like Cam York on the second pair because he already fits there. <laughs> so if you're going to create an extra hole, um, you create it where you've got an internal solution and not that unknown of an external solution. Not only that, but you create another difficult hole to fill if you move Prover off. So there's, it's a weird, weird. And like a lot of people said, Oh, Prover's not happy here. <clears throat> we haven't heard that from the player, but. You know, I don't think it's necessarily he's not. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's like that he's not happy and miserable. I think it's more that he would welcome a change. Like, I do think John Tortorella may have helped that a bit because I think that John Tortorella is yet another coach and obviously a very credible coach who has leaned on Ivan Provorov. And I think that whether or not you thought it was good on Torts or not, but the way that he handled the Pride Night thing where he really mm-hmm. used himself as a human shield for the player – I'm sure went a long way. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people tell me like, well, you know, like five on five, Travis Sanheim's been, at, uh, un, has been playing like a top pairing defenseman. He's, he's played more minutes than Provorov at times. Okay. Well, that's great. But what about the penalty kill? 
yeah. because Provorov's playing five more. and a half minutes on that last night. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think Travis Sandheim's ever been a strong special teams defenseman, power play or penalty kill. Obviously, Provorov has his limitations on the power play, and he's barely played there this year. But on the penalty kill, he's still by far their most important defenseman. And aside from Ristolainen, who plays the other side, nobody's even close in that respect. Yeah. And I think that you have a track record of Ivan Provorov that, yeah, okay, he's partner dependent. Okay, sure, but there still is a track record that the guy can play at a very high level on a top pair in big game moments. Like, I would argue that in the playoffs uh, of 2020, he was their best skater. The, the mm-hmm. amount of time he played, especially with how bad Sanheim, Sanheim and Myers looked. So I do agree that, let's just say I'll use this name just because it's been out there a lot recently, Colton Pareko, okay? Yeah. If you're bringing in Colton Pareko to presumably be your top pair right shot defenseman, are you more comfortable with Provorov and Pareko or Sanheim and Pareko? Because yeah, to me... Way more comfortable with Provorov, yeah. And, I, and it's not a slight on Travis Sanheim, and you brought it up last year. You unlocked him as a second pair number three defenseman. And I think that's what he is. And I do think that ultimately this year will probably be a blip on the radar. And as the cap rises, his 6.25 AAV will be more than palatable. But I just do not want to go anywhere near him being that top pairing guy. And I don't think that you should pigeonhole York into that role right away either. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I mean, look at the game last night in Calgary. Provorov played 27 minutes and 12 seconds. He played over five and a half minutes on the PK. Didn't play. And by the way, he played 27 minutes and didn't play a second of power play time. Right. Playing the the hardest minutes of the game, five on five and shorthanded. And he gives you 27. And and I tell you what, I wouldn't be surprised tonight if you see him over 25, 26 minutes again in this game. And look, and analytically, he didn't have a good night. You know, I think Mm -hmm. that he was always caved in in his own end. But yeah, some trouble handling the you have to kind of look at it and be. Pardon me. I, I thought he had trouble with the puck. A few yeah. Times so, like, I mean, it's like you're. Yeah. And he's never been the strongest, you know, like puck guy, decision maker. I think he's good at kind of like halting, you know, defensive cha- or offensive chances against. And I think that whenever he has played with Justin Braun or a guy who really can't move the puck in his own right, he struggled because he isn't a, the best outlet pass guy. He isn't the best play driver. I think he's good at skating the puck out of danger, but decision making wise, he's never been. It's never been his strong suit. Sorry, my cats are having a fight in the background. But right. um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like he's never been a player that pushes pace to me. Um, yeah, he's more of a under control and let's calm things down player. Sometimes you want your D though, to to really transition very quickly and get right back up on the opposition and and really stress them. Um, That's not something that he does a whole heck of a lot of, but um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the big kind of questions going forward. So Edmonton tonight, Ant, um, they go on this road trip. They lose the first two games by a score of six to two games look vastly different though. First game was obviously rough against Seattle. Um, it was not a good effort. And then against Vancouver, yeah, it was much better 
from a process standpoint, but same result with two empty net goals allowed, six to two, the final there. Then you get the win last night. Hart's going to go tonight in Edmonton in his hometown. I would tell you this right now. Um, take this to the bank. There will be no team in the NHL that Carter Hart, when it's all said and done, plays less games against than Calgary. Why? Because oftentimes when you play Calgary in on the road, you're going to play Edmonton very close to that game. So he'll get less Calgary games and more Edmonton games than any other team in the league. When he's done, he'll have like a handful of games against Calgary and four of like the five will end up being home games. But um, the game tonight. So now you're we're there. Go ahead. I think we're lagging here a little bit today. Um, what were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a. I'm sorry. These cats are causing a bit of like fucking WWE the back. at your house. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I'm sorry. But uh, no, honestly, like I remember you saying a lot that Toronto is kind of like a, like the complete opposite of what the Flyers are in yeah. terms of the high end talent and the no depth. And I think Edmonton is in the same exact boat. And that's what you're going to see there tonight is a team that, you know, in terms of high end talent, I'd be hard pressed to find a team that ha- has it but has a lot of question marks between the net, although Campbell has been better, and they're actively trying to improve their defense. Obviously, they've been surrounded with the talks of Eric Carlson, maybe Gavrikov or Edmondson or what have you. Goss' spear has also been tied there. But I think that that's a team that they're going to be very hard-pressed to shut down those top two lines, for sure. And, I mean, I wonder if Travis Sanheim is going to draw back in. Has that been announced yet? If Sanheim's going to draw back in? No, I, they obviously didn't have a skate today. They flew to Edmonton after the game yesterday, so three and four days. I would assume he's going to, but nothing's official. I, we'll find out at warm-ups or if Torts does do a pregame availability, I'm sure. So I'm sure that you're going to see another north of 25 minutes for Ivan Provorov, whether or not he, uh, Travis Sanheim plays or not. If Sanheim could play and presumably get paired back with – I know he played with Ivan Provorov the last game – but I would imagine that that's not going to be the case tonight. Um, I mean, I just, I, I'm really curious to see where they go with these pairs because obviously defensive pairs are going to be a very, very uh, important thing against a high octane team like the Edmonton Oilers. But I, I think that they're a team that is, there's a lot of holes in it, the Edmonton Oilers. And I think that the Flyers obviously have decent depth, obviously not as good as it was a couple weeks ago or what have you. But uh, they're certainly not an unbeatable squad, and obviously you have an unpre- a lot of unpredictability between the net with the Edmonton Oilers and a defense that, I mean, can be hit or miss at times. But when you have McDavid or Dreisaitl on the other side, you always have to be wary. Yeah, I think they'll end up going 11-7 and seven tonight. That's my guess. That they'll, they'll, run, they'll have 7-D. Braun will be in the lineup tonight. Sanheim will be back. I think, because I don't think, I don't know that you're going to have TK tonight. I just don't think so. Yeah. So. And he didn't return with the upper body injury last night. So I, I doubt we'll see him tonight. Um, you know, I get this DM. I get this DMs from this guy, Matt. I won't give out his last name. But I'm always telling this guy, like, dude, you need to chill out. Like, you're too reactive. Like, he freaks out about Barzell. And, like, Barzell's put up, like, all these 120-point seasons or something. And he says to me yesterday, he goes, I, I like towards him, wanted the Flyers to get him, but still don't get why he personally chose to coach a dog shit team that'll be rebuilding and not contending for years. That's how coaches get jobs. 
they don't take over teams like Florida because of what happened with Quinville very often. But then he said this, and he said the Flyers should trade Hart, Provy, TK, and whatever uh, more for Bedard. He goes, I love Hart, but if Urson is the next Brodeur, you got to make that move for Bedard. Now, let me ask you this, Sam, because some people say, oh, you're going to trade everything for Bedard. If you're the GM that lands the number one pick, is there is no package on this fucking planet that a team can put together that I'm trading the most exciting player since Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or Alex Ovechkin. Look, those guys make your franchise so much cash. (laughs) I mean, they are marketing gold. So if you're the GM and you have that pick, is there any package in the world that a team could trade you to get you to relinquish the, the rights to drafting Connor Bedard? I don't think so because it goes beyond like what he's going to mean for the team on the ice. Imagine the marketability. Like, let's just take the Vancouver Canucks, for example, hometown kid at franchise that's been a tire fire for several years now, even like a team like the Chicago Blackhawks, how much fucking negative media has been on that squad, the Arizona Coyotes. And the other part about it is, is like what? So you're going to trade arguably the, 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 the next generational star, the best first overall pick since Connor McDavid in 2015 for a bunch of pretty good players in their mid-20s. That I, are getting I think, paid a lot more money than Bedard's going to make for the next three years. <laughs> exactly. And I think people just have to realize that unless you're winning the lottery, you're not getting Connor Bedard. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, that that's just what it is. And one thing about the trading Carter Hart thing, like, look, like, if everything remains equal 12 months from now when Carter Hart's in need of a contract extension and Urson is still playing this way, maybe we could start having this type of conversation. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But I see no urgency to trade Carter Hart because Sam Urson has had a very good seven games to start his NHL career. Yeah. And this is not me saying that I'm not sold on Urson long term. I think there's a reason why the team has been high on him all season long. But I just I don't see it an issue in any type of way that you have two very good goalies right now. And I don't think that you should add unpredictability in your crease because one guy has got off to a good start of his career. If it continues, which it very well may continue in 12 months from now, when Carter Hart's to do a new contract by July 2024, sure, let's have that conversation. And then the Flyers are in a really good spot because you have an amazing trade chip. Or maybe you're using Sam Urson as a trade chip. Who knows? But at this point in time, I don't think having two very good goalies is a problem. Two very good goalies under the age of 25, especially for a team like the Flyers, who have always battled this position. Now you have a plethora of options and arguably it's the one position that you have to worry about the least. I really don't see an urgency to move on from Carter Hart. Yeah. And while you have total control over Erson, look, eventually you got to pick one of them because there's only one crease for a starter. And have, this is why very few teams have two young goaltenders. If one of them is a bonafide starter, the other one eventually is going to say, I don't want to be here because I want to be a starter because th- being a starter is the way to earn money. Yeah. And you have one shot at it as a pro athlete to earn money. It's why Bobrov- the reason they traded Bobrovsky was because they wanted to get rid of Bobrovsky and they committed to Brizgalov. 
It was Bobrovsky saying, I'm not going to sign here because you brought him in because I'm not going to get enough starts or get the crease to make the big bucks. And look at the fucking dough he's making now, right? <laughs> yeah. 10 mil over a seven year, 10 mil a year for on a seven year deal with Florida after being in Columbus and, and getting pretty good dough there. So, and somebody had asked me and shot me a DM last week and said, what does Carter Hart's extension look like? And when does he sign it? Do they sign it? Because they'll be able to sign it July 1st of this year because that's within a year of its expiration. And I said two things. If I'm the team, I don't sign it right away because of what we just talked about. Not that I have any doubts about Hart. You know where I feel, what I feel about Hart. And then the other part is if I'm Carter, I don't sign it either. And here's why. Because I don't know what the cap escalation is going to look like. Not only the year after, but you start to get a prognosis of what it's going to look like three years when it starts to rise. You're going to start to see. So I'm not signing that deal until I know the economics of the sport. You know, so I got to wait as long as I can into that year, into my final year to do that. So I have the most knowledge of percentage of cap that I can get. And that's the big element of it. Yeah, and I think one, well, there's obviously several things that you could criticize Chuck Fletcher for, but even though a lot of his contracts from financial perspectives have been fair, I do think he's jumped the gun a lot. Like, there's been an urgency to lock. Am I back? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to use my other laptop for the next time. Um, But, uh, yeah, so Travis Sanheim, obviously a big, big, um, I guess, example of jumping the gun on a contract. I think that you have a guy like Sean Couturier, who obviously you signed him, what, 11 months out from being a free agent, although he was going to get hurt anyway, so it wasn't like you could flip him for an asset anyway at the last year's trade deadline. So I think that Chuck Fletcher at times have, has been a bit too trigger-happy to like get out in front of that extension, and I think that if you do that again with Hart, you limit your options. And I think yeah. you could kind of apply it here to what's happening with Sanheim and Provorov that you kind of jump the gun and you lock in Sanheim, albeit to a decent extension in terms of average annual value. But now you're kind of saying, well, how many teams are going to have the palette to, you know, absorb an eight-year contract? Although the market value is extremely fair. And I mean, you don't want to make that same mistake with Hart just because you don't want to pay maybe a million or two more per season. And, you know, in terms of right now, what could a Carter Hart contract extension look like? Like, I mean, I mean, goalie contracts are so volatile, but I would assume somewhere in like that Thatcher Demko kind of range, like that $5 million per year, but probably even a bit more. But I mean, I think yeah, just I think so six and a half. Yeah. Probably in that range because of what he's yep. meant to this team. But I mean, I, I don't think that he's a guy that you should be so, urgent to jump into bed with on like a seven, eight year contract because of the depth you have of that position. Like, and it goes beyond Urson, you know, if Fedotov ever gets his affairs sorted out, which you hope he does, he's obviously going to be a big factor. Kolosov's going to be a big factor. So, I mean, I love Carter Hart and I think he's a, you know, a bona fide starter in the NHL, but it's not like the Flyers have nothing else. They have a lot of other options, and I think the last thing they need to do is put all their eggs in one basket. Yeah, I agree. Um, you, you wait on this one, and if I'm the player, I wait as well. Last thing, Eric uh, tweets in, and first of all, Bob hasn't been in the league for 16 years, Eric. Uh, he said the Bob would have fixed the Flyers goalie problem for 16 years. Here's why I disagree with that. 
He's been a great goalie. He's had some tremendous years. He's won Vesnas, multiple. He's won one playoff series. A single playoff series. One. The Flyers, in the time that he left here, have won way more playoff series. Because he left here in 2011. They've won, they won a couple in his first year, and then they won one round, technically one round, against... Uh, Montreal, which was a bit of a weird situation, obviously, in the bubble. But he wouldn't have fixed it. He has not been good in the playoffs. He's not. That's just a fact of the matter. You can be a great regular season goaltender, but if you can't do it in the playoffs, there's not much point because you need great goaltending in the playoffs more than any other position. And I also think that... And I love and, and I think that in the immediate aftermath of him leaving, you got some very good years out of Steve Mason, which I don't think gets talked about enough. Like, I think it was 14-15. He had, like, a 9.28 save percentage or something. Like, he was bananas that year. He was absolutely incredible. And obviously you know, he had he a was, losing record, too. Yep, yeah, he had a losing record. And obviously, you've had Carter Hart. In the in the more recent years, obviously there was those hiccup years in the Brian Elliott, Michael Neuverth type of era. Mm-hmm. That was kind of tough. But I mean, aside from that, I uh, you know, even the last decade or so, like I don't think that goaltending, even with those Brian Elliott, Michael Neuverth type of years, has been like their biggest issue. I think that there's been much more pressing issues than the goaltending. Despite obviously, Bob would have been a welcomed addition. But I, I don't know. Like, he obviously has won the two Vezina trophies. He has won the better goalies in the NHL in the mid-2010s. But to your point, there's always been something erratic about his play that seems to come to the – that seems to rise to the top during the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, the 16-17 season, Bob had a 931 save percentage and a 2.06 goals against average. He had seven shutouts. I mean, a couple of years later, he had nine shutouts. But his playoff numbers, when you look at his playoff numbers – um, you know, the first year he played six playoff games for Flyers, he had an 877, then a 722 save percentage. First year in Columbus in the playoffs, they lost in the first round, he had a 908. Then the next year, they lost in five games, he had an 882. Then they lost in six, he had a 900 save percentage. In a th- I mean, you're looking at goals against average here of 3.18, 3.88, 3.18. Then when they won the round of the playoffs against Tampa Bay, he had a 2.41, and he had a 9.25. He had one good year. Then the next year, 9.01. That was Florida in 1920. And a 3.07 goals against average. Last year, he played in three games. He had a 8.41 save percentage and a 5.33 goals against average. Now, last year, actually, he had the 9.11 and the 2.7. That was the year prior in Florida. So he has not been good. He's got a 901 career save percentage in the playoffs with a 3.13. When I look at Steve Mason's numbers, let me look at his playoff numbers. He's got a very similar 897 and a 3.27. And Bob's making 10 mil. Mason wasn't making no 10 mil. No, he was making like three or something. He gave them some good years, I have to say. Yeah, Yeah. he gave them some good years, I have to say. I, I thought he was a very underrated flyer while he was here. Yeah. I mean, you look at the one year he had in uh, 14-15, Mace, 9.28 save percentage of 2.25 goals against average, three shutouts that year, uh, played in 51 games, had a record of 18, 18, and 11. So <laughs> he was insane. hockey 500. He's he was fo- hockey. hockey 500, 
Uh, but he had a 928 save percentage. I That's think he was crazy. top five. I think he was top five in um save I'm pretty sure he was top five in save percentage that year. Oh yeah, he had to be with that. And team. I wonder what his goals saved above expected were <laughs> because yeah. of you know that that defense was certainly uh not nothing that? to write home about. <laughs> did they have that back then? <laughs> I think they did. I think it goes all the way back to 2010-11, if I'm not mistaken. So what year was that again? 2015-16? Was that what I said? 14-15. Okay, so 14-15. Um, let me don't do some results. So we'll go here, and we'll get to that. Let's see what, where that save percentage ranked him. All right, Carey Price had a 9. Oh, Jesus, this year. Is that the year Carey Price won the heart? Yeah, nine. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, so um, I got to put minimum amount of games in here. Hold on a sec. Let's go. It doesn't let me do that. Are you kidding me? Uh, I'll add more filters. So we'll put in 25 games. All right. Greater than 25 games. And let's go get stats. Because right, I'm getting all these guys with a 1,000 save percentage. Yeah, Carey Price had a 933. Devin Doobie. With Arizona and Minnesota at a 929, Mace was third with a 928. Had a Cam Talbot who had a 926. Corey Schneider had a 925 with the Devils. Crawford, Craig Anderson, Hopi, Pekka Rene, Henrik Lundqvist rounds out the top 10. So you were saying uh, 25 games or more? Yeah. 25 games or more, Steve Mason was second in goals saved above expected per 60. Yeah. Behind only, only carry price. price. Yeah. Only price. And then there's, and then actually Dubnik had a very good year that year. Pavlich had a good year. Cam Talbot, like you said, Varlamov, mm-hmm. Flurry. But like, just to say that he was, and I don't even think he got a Vesna vote, but I mean, he was the second best goaltender in the NHL in a lot of ways that year. Obviously, Andrew Hammond had a spectacular run down the stretch. He played 24 games. Yep. So if you add Andrew Hammond and he, Steve Mason slides to number three. But uh, and also, I think Calvin Pickard played 16 games and he had a very good season as well. But just to say, he was a top five goaltender in the NHL that year, despite being on a very, very bad Flyers team. 18, 18, and 11 with those numbers is bananas. That's yeah. crazy. Did not get, did not actually end up with a Vesna vote that year. So, anyway, all right, let's wrap it up there. Right? Uh, what's uh, what's on the fourth period.com? Well, I, uh, Hay, uh, Hayes' article dropped, I believe it was mo- yeah, yesterday. I'm all mixed up with my days with how much writing we've been doing. But, uh, you know, trying to dig out some more league-wide stuff as well. Expect a couple more articles to come out this week. And obviously, I think you've brought this up too. Not going to be super exciting on the Flyers' front. I think uh, Hayes or Provorov trade are very, very unlikely. More so Provorov. I think Hayes maybe has an outside chance with the shrinking center market. But, I mean, I think aside from guys like JVR, Patrick Brown, Justin Braun, it may be a quieter deadline than people are hoping for. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be following along at thefourthperiod.com and at Marco 25 Great stuff, Ant. We'll talk uh, next week. Flyers in Edmonton tonight to take on the Oilers. Everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll talk to you next week on, or next episode, I should say, 52, which is what it will be on Stick to Hockey Live. Have a great day, everybody. Enjoy your hockey tonight. On the car,